Hi, thanks for listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane, and on this episode, I'm going to be speaking to journalist and author Ben Judah about his new book, This Is Europe, The Way We Live Now. Hi, Ben. Nice to meet you. Ben Judah, author of books that include Fragile Empire, This is London, and his latest book, This is Europe, out with Picador later on this month. We're sat in what actually turns out to be kind of a memorable place for us both. I believe I sat right there. I'm pointing to my right for the benefit of listeners on my 21st birthday. And uh, I doubt I'd have ever come back here had it not been for your suggestion <laughs> that we meet here for this. So um, thanks very much for that. It's been no, no, a no. bit of a blast from the past. Um, so tell us why you chose Abu Zard in Shepherd's Bush. Well, I kind of chose it because I'm actually from this part of London. I kind of grew up in Shepherd's Bush and my parents actually live really very close to here. So I come to these different Syrian restaurants and bakery shops all the time and I thought that it would be a kind of nice place for this discussion because the book's about how Europe is transforming in front of our eyes and I think this is a great place to have that as a conversation it's really kind of true to a lot of the themes of the book which are about uh, you know one of which is very important is immigration perhaps you could take us through some of the things that you've enjoyed over the years and maybe we can order those tonight yeah well I always order the same thing I order the grilled meat and maybe have some hummus or some labneh. How have you been? I've been good. Well, it's sort of my third book, so it's sort of familiar phase. You know, it's just about to come out and I've started to do some interviews about it. And it's quite interesting. Like once you write a book, you know, what your mental relationship is in the writing and how it's together and in the words, you're not, you've got to learn all over again how to talk about it because that's not what I was doing. I was just writing it. So now I'm learning how to speak about it, how to kind of discuss the themes and talk about sort of what it means. It's a whole new sort of exercise. Has it always been that way every time you publish? Yes. I've been looking forward to talk about it, actually, for for years. It's taken me a really a long time to, to write this book. It's not a sort of, you know, one weekend in the Cotswolds, size 15 print, you're done kind mm. of affair. It's taken me basically five years to do it. I started... Uh, writing and reporting it in March 2018, and then I, you know, um, click goodbye. Final sentences were changed on the PDF on the PDF in March uh, of this year. So that's five, uh, that's five. That's five years. And one of the things I really enjoy about these kind of conversations is I'm really interested in what other people think about the book. It's yeah. fascinating to me what other people's relationships with the characters and what they find interesting. And often I learn a lot about the book that I didn't even realize through these kind of conversations and, and through readers. So I love reading their comments and, and everything, what people say. Hopefully they hopefully they like it. But even if they don't, it'll be interesting for me to sort of learn how to be a better writer. Ben, you're of Baghdadi Jewish descent. Yeah. You grew up in the Balkans. You were educated partly in France, partly in the UK. And your coverage as a journalist, as well as your literary work to date, surveys manifold changes across Eastern and Western Europe over the past 10 years or more. You're someone who has clearly kept pace with those changes, which suggests to me that you're, you're quite good at letting go of ideas about what constitutes a culture or a place and instead getting to the heart of what they are now, even as they're changing. Did that motivate you above all in writing This Is Europe or was it something else? 
Well, you know, one of the other reasons I chose this restaurant is, as you said, I'm of kind of Baghdadi Jewish descent. And the Judah family's journey, you know, began in Baghdad in the 19th century, where they'd been for hundreds and hundreds of years. It went through India during the British colonial period and then ended up in the UK. So I grew up with lots of migration stories, sort of myths and tales uh, in the family. And I was thinking from a very young age about sort of immigration and why my grandfather who was you know a Baghdadi Jew was different from my grandmother who was a German Jewish Holocaust survivor and what made uh what made them different and you know what is the refugee experience and what is what's it do to you if you kind of leave your country and your uh culture behind so maybe a little bit of uh I think a little bit of, uh, of that um made me want to do these these series of books about what is really a, a kind of pan-European experience of immigration, movement, uh, and sort of trans transnational kind of exchange, sometimes violent, sometimes driven by love, often beautiful, sometimes scary. The way that you've written this book, it surprised me. When I first heard about This Is Europe, I assumed that it was going to make some kind of argument. Oh. And, and I was pleasantly surprised to learn that it doesn't do that at all. For someone who engages a lot with political writing, this book has brought a stark but welcomely warm human dimension to the subject of Europe and its future. Had you always envisaged it as a series of interviews? Well, I'll tell you why the book came to be like this. Is I first thought I was going to write a book about France. I went to France, I spent you know, months and months in France reporting a book, a very classic book with me as the sort of um, travel writer, narrator, and I absolutely hated it. I thought it was boring, I thought it was sort of arrogant, I didn't like this this character of the travel writer that the narrator is. I didn't like how it kind of reduced the people I was meeting. Did you dislike you as the travel writer? Or did you find that it was something about the very idea of the travel writer that just didn't agree with you? Well, <laughs> I think it's a mixture, a mixture of the two, but I, I don't think that that's really a very kind of appropriate way to write about Europe in the 21st century. Because I think that travel writing Unfortunately, it's a bit of a dead genre at the moment. And the problem is, why should a sort of British bloke travel around Europe sort of lecturing you on what he thinks about it and what you should think about it? And I don't like the way that in travel writing, even by the best and the finest travel writers, the people that they meet and interview always get sort of reduced to subjects or, or characters. You get a little snippet of them and then they're judged positively or negatively by the by the travel writer. So what I wanted to do is just delete that that figure of the travel writer, which you know, is quite kind of, feels quite sort of old fashioned now. It feels very sort of post-imperial, feels like it comes from a, another time and try something new and, and new and different. So I read this, what I'd written and I thought, I just, I don't like the, I don't like this form. I want to just break the form and do something different. So I threw away 50,000 words and Started again. How long by word count is the book as it's ended up? I'm trying to get a sense of how much you threw away. Oh, lot, like a half. You know, lots of kind of writers that I really respect have kind of done that and then kind of encouraged me to, to do that. And I kind of read about it as well. Some kind of great Russian writers just throwing manuscripts into, into the fire. And <laughs> I thought, you've got to like trust your gut. Like at least in, in my life, all the mistakes that I've made are when I didn't trust my gut and I trusted that somebody else sort of knew better than me. So into the fire, those pages went and you decided that you were instead going to get in touch with people scattered throughout the European continent. And you wrote it throughout the pandemic too. 
Well, yeah, that had a really big impact on on the form uh, as well. I really committed to sort of write it, not just report it. Like, I'm going to do this thing uh, at the start of the pandemic. And I was, at the time, like a lot of people, I was sort of locked away and I was reading the Decameron. So I was very influenced by this medieval book in which in which Boccaccio sort of gathers all these voices to tell tales of the plague in a castle. And I thought, wow, what an interesting format. It's a medieval format, but actually kind of feels very relevant to the way we uh, the way we live now, to gather all these people together in this book from all over Europe, all kinds of different classes and races and uh, religions and genders and sexualities. And each of them is going to tell tell me and tell the reader what it's like to live now, what it's like to be in, in Europe now. So I was very influenced by you know, that book. And I was also very influenced by, not really, not really a book, it's more like a library of books or by, uh, or scrolls, by the Talmud. You know, I'm kind of a very Jewish person and the Talmud are these sort of holy books of the, of the Jewish people. And they're very unusual where, and they're not at all like anything you would sort of read normally and you sort of study them with a, with a rabbi because they weren't like this. One rabbi tells a story, another rabbi counters with another story and says, it's not like that at all. And then they argue and they argue and they argue about different legal points that build up into the kind of code of Jewish ethics and, and law. And that left me with this real desire to do something like that because it left me with a, a real deep sense as you have to look at something one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine ways. So I'll give you an example of how that you know, Talmudic principle infuses the book is take the chapters about Berlin. So we see Berlin in one chapter through the eyes of Abud. He's a kind of Syrian uh, refugee. Uh, he's His wife's um, come with him. She's pregnant. She's very, very depressed. He's very worried about her. She's got deep trauma. And he spends the day driving around delivering for Amazon. He is that guy that knocks on your door and then for a split second you say thanks. And uh, he gives you your, your package and he feels he's living in like the soft authoritarianism of an app he can't even go down a street that the app doesn't want about it bleeping at him and harassing him and docking points from him and he feels that berlin is actually this really oppressive place which is really overrun by criminality and gangs it's he's shocked by how it doesn't even really sort of feel like a European city, what he imagined that to be in, in his imagination anymore. He wants to leave. He wants to go to, to Dubai, and he's dreaming of making it to the UAE where he thinks his wife will be happier back in his own sort of culture. And then you see Berlin again, and you see it from the point of view of Haidar. He's also a refugee from Syria. He's a gay man, and for him, Berlin is this absolute theatre of joy and freedom and self-discovery and beauty as he discovers his sexuality and you know begins begins to learn how to express himself as a queer dancer and starts performing drag and finds all kinds of kind of friendships and you know abilities to sort of perform with a, a similar kind of singer from from Israel and for him Berlin is freedom whereas for Abud it feels like a, a very sinister form of app uh 
app oppression and exploitation of, of cheap labor. So that's the Talmudic principle. We're going to look at Berlin, but we're going to look at it from two different points of view. And we get that again and again and again in the, in the book. The book's an invitation to look at Europe from as many different points of view as I could fit in the book. I think what you're describing here is a step change in the way that journalism and travel writing in the 21st century is being done. I mean, you and I, we're both millennials. Yeah. You, you see yourself as very yeah, exactly. much one of many nodes in this global social media driven network. Well, yeah, it's just I don't think you need a book in which a travel writer wanders around Europe describing what you've already seen, either through your own travels or through through Instagram, and then sort of informing you of a little bit of sort of Wikipedia history. I, mm. don't, I don't think that's necessary. You wrote in a recent Sunday Times article, quote, far from being a museum, the continent is steadily blurring with Africa and Asia, and that migration, you wrote, is the great megatrend that will define Europe's 21st century. With your mind's eye, how do you picture Europe in 15 years? You know, this is Europe is about the way we live now. And I feel that the way that we live as Europeans, new and old, is really changing in front of our eyes. And that's really being affected by five uh, trends. The first is immigration, you know, enormous ways of immigration, which are changing every city, uh, big and small, in Europe, from Moscow all the way to to Cork. The second uh, is climate change, and one of the one of the reasons that I, you know, invited a lot of these people to tell their their stories in the book is that they were really at the front lines of climate change and climate breakdown. And I really felt felt reporting the book that the um, that you know angst across the continent and a sense that. Uh, the disaster was finally upon us was uh, was very much there. Second is climate change. The third is the incredible complexity of supply chains. You can't you can't look at a single product, look at this sort of plastic fork. Like just imagine the, the journey that this plastic fork took probably from, from China, probably it was delivered at Rotterdam. Rotterdam was, is where we start the book, is it not? This is where the, is. the guy that you speak to says, I am the start of Europe. Yeah, Europe is now tied up with a vast network of needs and demands exactly. and supply chains. I love the fact that you get very deep very early on into the ugliness of a Europe we don't see and we don't think about. It was really important for me to show that Europe's not just an idea, it's not just a geography, it's also this incredible ball of connections and systems and supply lines. And to see it from the perspective of the people in that system. So the book begins uh, with Yele in uh, the port of Rotterdam. He's the pilot that guides in the, the super tankers, which bring in vast, incredible amounts of stuff from across the world and mostly at uh, this point from, from Asia. Then we see that whole system from the point of view of Jonut, who's a Romanian truck driver, who's endlessly crisscrossing Europe backwards and forwards. And what does it look like for him and how's he experiencing Europe? That was really interesting for me. We go all the way to the Russian um, far north and we see the continent from the eyes of a, a gas worker really at the source, like constructing a new... Uh, node in the great gas system which ties Europe together and occasionally drives it uh, uh, apart. And we look at it from the point of view of, air, of people working in airlines, the point of view of people working in agriculture. I really, it was very important for me to show work. Because the book's about the way we live now, 
And the way we live is largely through work. Like that's what we spend most of our time doing. And I wanted to show how the jobs that we have are, are changing in quite a profound way. The next trend of the book is the internet. And the internet and technology, I think, is changing our lives in a far more profound way than we, than we realize. And something I noticed assembling this book along the arc of life is that the very nature of chance in people's lives was being affected by dating apps and algorithms and the ability to send sort of instant messages uh, at any one time. There are a lot of love stories in the, in the book because love is such an important part of what life is. Love stories between the young, uh, love stories uh, between the, the old, the love of children. And the internet is everywhere. It's transforming any, every one of those interactions. So the internet's a big theme of the book and how we live the internet in our everyday lives and also the people behind the internet. So some people have been a bit surprised that one of the stories in the, in the book is, uh, you know, kind of porn star. But, you know, if you look at the, the numbers don't lie. If you look at the mm. amount of people well, who yes, watch yeah. porn in uh, Europe every day, that's a huge industry and a huge part of people's lives. So I really wanted to do the people behind the the internet, the people behind the internet. So you see, uh, you know, sex work on the internet from two points of view, a man's point of view, and then you see it from a, a woman's uh, point of view. But when you say that this is a book that really looks at the way that the economic settlement of the 21st century affects the lives of people in Europe, where did you find the particularly European feel came through most for you in the process of, of interviewing? Well, those are all global trends uh, in a way, but they take a very European form in, in Europe. And you see that through the point of view of, uh, of the people who, who, tell their, uh, who tell their stories. So... You know, one um, story I think really captures uh, a lot of the story of David. And David leaves Lisbon. He's Portuguese. He's married to a Slovak woman. You know, these sort of inter-transnational marriages that are coming in uh, in modern Europe. That was kind of important for me to kind of document that. And he goes to a sort of dying Portuguese uh, village in an attempt to, to sort of start a family there and to, in his own small way, uh, revive that. So the thing that's very European about that is... The way this, you know, urban sort of online guy tries to go back into a very ancient dying uh, culture uh, in this huge band of abandoned villages that goes from Bulgaria all the way through the sort of inland Mediterranean all the way to uh, Portugal. And it's about the challenges he, he faces, the challenges from climate change. You know, he builds a house and it gets burnt down. And then the challenge of adaptation, in which he decides that the only way that we're going to stop the fires is if people start uh, raising sheep like they used to. So he tries to become a shepherd. And the drama of the chapter is can he learn from this very old peasant shepherd who kind of barely went to school and when he was a young boy used to practically live in the mountains with the sheep keeping them away from the wolves they once had can he learn can he actually learn the ways of his own uh, ancestors of a few uh, generations back or will he fail will the will he not manage so that's a very kind of european uh sort of for, that's a, those are global trends taking a very kind of european form how did you find and decide on the people that appear in this book. So I wanted to write a book that had 
all of Europe uh, in it uh, geographically, that had all of Europe's uh, class and racial and uh, gender splits, the stories of 50-50 men and women, that it also had, you know, stories of uh, from people of different sexualities in there. So it really captured all the different uh, slices of, uh, of life in the continent. And then that they were arranged along the key way which we experience life, which is really sort of age. Are you a child? Are you young? Are you old? Are you kind of facing death? So once I decided I wanted to do it like that, I then set up said about basically filling in this enormous puzzle some things came very quickly and then i kind of found myself going oh shit i've got to find a woman in scandinavia over the age of 50 who's dealing with the loss of a parent and it became some of the quests became extremely long it took months to find the right person in terms of how i found these people so i found them by every single technique you can imagine uh, some of them I just met, just bumped into them. Uh, I found them in, sh in shelters. I met people on the street. I found people on the internet, uh, people through forums, people through friends. Other journalists recommended uh, people to me. I found people in sort of uh, local newspapers. And the rule was no politicians. We don't want these are normal people. These are ordinary, uh, ordinary, ordinary lives. And... They all have something in common. And what they have in common is that they're all storytellers. They all believe that their story should be heard and should be out there and has something to say about Europe and the way we live now. So, you know, the ambition was really to have everything European, but also everything human. And for there to be everything there is that makes up a human being on their journey uh, through life. And I imagine that many of the older interviewees were best placed to give you a sense of Europe as it was. One of the things that really uh, struck me was when I went to Burgundy. And Burgundy, you know, what could be more European than a glass of uh, white Burgundy? And I discovered that if you go into the, chap the churches, um, you know, the French wine industry was started by the monks. And the monks used to take a record of when the, the Vendage happened, when they kind of did the, the, har the harvest. And it was pretty much the same date for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries going all the way back to some of the earliest records are from you know shortly after uh charlemagne and now over the last uh 15 years it's gone completely out of whack it's months different and just watching how the winemakers were working showed me that this is a new europe in terms of climate the absolute struggle of growing you know these grapes when it's too hot in spring and so the vines grow too early and then they get killed by the frost and you lose uh the grapes how to kind of fight off frosts that are coming at the wrong time of the year often what they're doing is putting enormous candles out between the uh vines or they're beating smoke over them to protect them uh from the from the frost and seeing it from that perspective and also kind of listening to the real fear uh, from the point of view of the kind of young men and women kind of working uh, there about having seen a peach that had come at the wrong time of year or having seen a flower that had come, at the, come when it shouldn't have really gave me the sense of our natural world uh, changing. And one of the, the, the winemaker whose story um, 
you know, is the, is what that chapter's about. Like, he's a really interesting person because he's both the heir to an ancient, enracinated uh, legacy. His family had been uh, sort of whining the same... Uh, the same uh, since there were kings and queens uh, in France. And through his family memory, he's seen the birds disappear, the nature progressively become a kind of mono uh, monoculture. And now he's watching the very climate that gave us uh, white burgundy and that incredible taste uh, disintegrate. Well, the food has just arrived. Here we have it. We have the fetouche, we have the taboulaye, and and the hummus as well. I knew we were going to overorder. I'm looking at the table now and I'm seeing that we haven't quite demolished it, but it's 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 looking uh, in a compromised state from when it arrived. Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, did it bring back memories for you? Um I, I can't well, remember yeah. my 21st birthday. Oh, well, I kind of I, I I love kind of Levantine and uh Middle Eastern Middle Eastern food. I've long kind of thought that if I had to be be told you only eat one kind of food for the rest of your life. I would pick uh, this one. It's exactly what I want. Kind of grilled meats and kind of salads. It's refreshing, but yeah. there's also got some something about it. And I could happily subsist off, uh, you know, Levantine food for the rest of my life. To go back to what we were talking about before in that Sunday Times article, on the subject of migration, you wrote, quote, centrist politicians such as Emmanuel Macron believe they can avoid such a stark choice, sustaining Europe's universalist heritage and policing the continent's frontiers through a clever balancing act. The fear is that the numbers will eventually overwhelm them, forcing politics into the binary position that I found in Briançon, where the sudden influx forced people to choose. This is why I felt, symbolically, the great fight over what Europe really is and will become had started there in the Alps, which is what you described earlier. You've met Macron several times. You've profiled him. Uh, you know a little bit about how his mind works. Does he really come across as somebody who is trying to avoid a hard choice? Well, Macron's very intellectual. He um, is really a sort of think tanker, a sort of analyst uh, at heart. He loves trying to imagine and to see the future and he he thinks that political success comes from trying to combine the best bits of different political traditions in Europe such as liberalism socialism and uh, and nationalism so Macron's favorite words politically are en même temps at the same time so if you listen to his speeches and this is by design he'll always say things like you know Europe has a universalist heritage and it's very very important that uh, refugees are treated well but at the same time you can't have a, a democracy if you don't have borders and a clear uh, a clear line of where the polity begins uh, and ends so that's how macron uh, that's how macron thinks is he one of the only true intellectual leaders we have in europe at the moment certainly out of the big big five or six uh european countries yeah he's the uh i think he's the only he's definitely the only one with Macron, the key thing to kind of understand about him is that he wanted to be a novelist, he wanted to be a writer, didn't quite sort of have it in him before he became a politician. And he then thought, he then studied under Paul Ricoeur, who is a kind of very important sort of um, philosopher of memory in France. And Paul Ricoeur is all about why do we choose to remember some things, such as the French Revolution, 
But we forget other things like the Albersingian Crusades when a gigantic percentage of the population of southwestern France was exterminated uh, in the name of the true faith uh, by the sort of French kings, the French nobility uh, from, the, from the north. Macron believes that memory really matters in, in Europe. And he believes that the key thing you need to understand about France as a society is that the French, on a psychological level, on an almost sort of Freudian level, uh, deeply mourn losing their, their monarchy. And that France psychologically... Really? Yeah, this is what he thinks. That France psychologically is a monarchy. That, that is really surprising. So Macron believes that there's an empty throne which hangs in the middle of French politics and of which every few years the French people acclaim somebody as a king and then grow angry that this person's actually not a king, he's not good enough, and that therefore the French president has to endlessly navigate with the French public's desire for a Republican king. And that means if you uh, go, well, I'm normal, like Francois Hollande, then they'll hate you because that's not how a king behaves. If you go to them, I'm the king, love me, like Sarkozy did, they'll go, that's not how a true king behaves. That's, uh, you know, we hate you. And therefore Macron believes that he's trying to strike a balancing act, which is just to behave like the king and... You can love me or hate me, I don't care. This book is unusual in your repertoire. You're normally somebody who writes about policy. Why have you written a book that is much more human-shaped? Well, that's the, that's the thing. You know, I think that we shouldn't think about the world just through uh, policy. So if you look at what they really are, like what is liberalism, socialism, nationalism, these philosophies are, are really about the question of how should we live? What is it to live well? What is it uh, that a good society should be? So the subtitle of the book, The Way We Live Now, is also a question to the readers. Is this the way you want to live now? And the idea was through the lives of uh, normal people on that arc of life to show this is what life's like transformed by the internet, by climate change, by supply chains, by immigration. It's asking that question, is this the society we, we want to live in? And it's left to the reader to make up their, their own minds. The book's title might suggest this is Europe, whether you like it or not, in brackets. <laughs> but actually what you're doing is you're saying, is this the Europe that we want to live in? Do we hope for better? What are we prepared to do and say to have the Europe that we want. So that's the, that's the issue, which is when we talk about policy, policy is kind of grounded in constraints. Like Britain has a Europe policy. Macron has uh, a Britain, uh, Britain policy. Policy is different from politics. Politics is about kind of standing up and asking for things and trying to, uh, ch trying to change things. So my book is asking uh, a question to uh, policy wonks, which is, read it, this is how we live now, is this the way you want to live now? And if so, I mean, a little less uh, policy, please, I mean, a little bit more politics. But politics as a moral question, like, is this the society that we, we want to live in? I'm really enjoying reading this book, Ben. I also think that somewhere in there deserves to be a documentary. It is like oh. a documentary. I want so much for this book to somehow be put into the, the Netflix machine and just come out as so many vignettes. I think that would be stunning. Thank you very much. Great. That was great. Great.